Now, if you've been with us uh, recently, you know that we've been working on a series in 1 Samuel. And in that passage in 1 Samuel, which uh, it always works better when you turn it on, he's telling me, which is another good reason. Um, in 1 Samuel, we've been looking through this series, and what's been going on is going on with the fact that David has been on the run. David has been struggling big time. He has been chased from one place to another. He's had to do some crazy things like pretending he was crazy and writing on the wall and drooling on the floor. And he's been chased after Saul from one place after another. He's becoming increasingly discouraged. And life is getting hard for him. You know, the, the, the prophet told him that he was going to be the one day the king, but he didn't realize it would be this long and this hard. And so he's wearing out. And life is becoming increasingly hard for him. Go back just for a little bit for just a review to remember what's going on. And before, just before that, we saw Saul coming almost to the end of his rope. That's the passage about Saul and the witch of Endor, where he calls upon Samuel to come out of the grave and talk to him. And it's a tragic kind of thing. A man who started so well and ends so badly. And so he's having his own troubles. He's about ready to die in the battle that's coming up. David, of course, if you remember in chapter 29, he's in trouble once again. Things had gotten so bad for him that he and his men went over and went and worked for the Philistines, the people they hated. And yet he, had, he was so in such a struggle, he had no thing but to do but to go work for them. And in chapter 29, he becomes, has a real struggle going on because the battle's about to come. So here's David now working for the hated Philistines, getting ready to, to go against God's people. And David's like, whatever I do is going to be wrong here. I mean, if I have to go fight against my own people, I'll never get to be king. They're going to say, you're a traitor. And so David is in big trouble. In fact, what happens is some of the guys come to him, and again, God is working through all this. The guys come to David and say, listen, David is this guy that killed a lot of us just years ago. Why are you letting this guy go fight against, go fight against his own people? And so David says, oh, yeah, I really do want to fight for you, O king, Achish. And he's realized, please get me out of here if there's any way I can do it. And so what happens is Achish says, oh, David, I know you're with me, and I know things are going to be good. And, but the other guys, the leaders, say, I don't trust this guy. Don't let him go into battle. He could turn, turn you know, in the middle of the battle and start fighting against us again. And so David says, oh, I'm not going to do that. And they say, no, you need to leave. And David goes, Thank you, Lord, because I didn't want to have to be fighting against my own people. And that's chapter 29, which brings us to where in our passage this morning to another crisis. David keeps going from one bad crisis to another, and this one is a bad one. David is now, he's got a group, an area that he's working in particularly, and a lot of bad things are going to happen. Let's pick it up in verse 1. David and his men arrived at Ziklag on the third day. Stop for a sec. Ziklag is that city down there that he got, and that's kind of like his place where he works at. That's kind of the area we remembered. He would go out from there with the troops, and they'd attack a group and take all their goodies and kill them all was basically their MO, and they would, that way nobody knew what they were doing down there. But David and his men arrived at Ziklag on the third day. The Amalekites had raided the Negev, that's that area, dry area down in the south, and they attacked and burned down Ziklag. In other words, that was their fort, Ziklag. It's now been burned down. It's like, oy vey, everything I do goes wrong. I don't, now I've got no place to go back to. That was our city that they just burned down. And so what happens, it said, not only had they burned it down, 
but they'd kidnapped the women and everyone in it, from the youngest to the oldest. They had killed no one, but had carried them off as they went their way. So the, Amalek I mean, the Amalekites are fighting against them, and they take all this stuff, and they take all their people. And it says in verse 3, when David and his men arrived at the town, they found it burned down. Their wives, their sons, and daughters had been kidnapped. It's like David's like, Lord, you keep telling me that one day I'm going to be king, and yet I'm reeling from one tragedy to another. And so he's struggling. What's happening here? Why is God not being with me and helping me? So notice what happens here. People say, well, you know, at least nobody was killed. It's like, uh-uh. There's, there's something worse than being killed, and that's becoming a slave. And that's why the Amalekites didn't care about it so much, because as long as they got them, they could sell them. They lived in that barren area south of there where a lot of the trade routes, and they could sell them to the Egyptians and all the other different tribes. And so things are really bad. Things are really going really bad for them. So notice, you will, verse 4. David and the troops with him wept loudly until they had no strength left to weep. There's probably a lot of us in this room have sometimes have wept so long there's just no more tears. You just kind of run out after time. But you can imagine now, here's a group of these fighters. They're strong. They're following him. There's 600 of them. And they wept so loudly, they had no strength left. David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelite and Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had also been captured. In other words, he's lost it all. He's lost a city. He's lost his wives. These men have lost their families. And here I am. What am I going to do? What, how, where is God in the midst of all these struggles? David was in a difficult position, like, duh. He's been in a difficult position for a long time, and he's in a bigger situation right now for what's going on. So anyways, the difficult position because the troops talked about stoning him. Imagine that. This has been their great leader that they've been following up and down the ridge, and they, here they are now finding out that they're talking about stoning him. Like, you can hear it going, David, you didn't, you didn't leave anybody behind to, to protect us? We all went over there to fight and left our own families there. And now because of you, our kids are captured, our wives are gone. They're going to be sold in the marketplace. And they're talking about killing David. And it's one of these things where David is getting lower and lower and deeper and deeper. And the question is, where is God in the midst of all my troubles? And you notice what it says. They were bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. And then there's this great phrase, but. But David found strength in the Lord his God. We'll come back to that verse in just a minute. David said to Biathar, remember the priest, Biathar was one of the ones that survived the massive killing by Saul of all the priests. He, he went and worked with him. He said to priest, Abiathar the priest, son of Ahimelech, he said, bring me the ephod. And we've talked with before. We don't really know how the ephod worked. Probably something on their shoulders. Some people believe that it would glow or it would do something to let you know a yes, no answer from God. We don't know. But whatever it was, they said, tell Abiathar to bring it here and bring it to him. And so David asked the Lord, Lord, should I pursue these raiders, the Amalekites? Will I overtake them? The Lord replied, replied to him, pursue them for you will certainly overtake them and rescue the people. That's finally some good news that he's had in the midst of a disaster. And so what happens in verse 9? So David and the 600 men went with him as far as the Wadi Besor, where 200 men who were to remain behind would stop. You know, just so exhausted, like 200, and said, I, we just can't go on. 
By the way, the distance that they figure out what they think is when they're talking about going from where he's at in Ziglag all the way back to where the battle was, it's about 60 miles. So these guys are doing a lot of walking, or if they have horses, they're doing a lot of riding, trying to get ready for this battle. And so 200 men who were left behind who would stop. They stopped because they were too exhausted to cross the Wadi Basur. They had to get way down, way up again, and they're like, man, we're beat. We just can't do this anymore. We've been running and racing. We can't do it. But David and 400 of the men continued to pursue. We're going to go back. We're going to get our wives. We're going to get our kids. God has told us that we should go for it. And so they're doing that. And interesting, here's where, again, here's one of those, you know, things where it happens where God works on something. You go, well, isn't that quite a coincidence? It's no coincidence because God had an Egyptian there on the ground. They found an Egyptian in the open country, and they brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. They gave him some pressed figs and two clusters of raisins. Like, let's get some carbs into this guy. Let's get some sugar running. See if we can get him to the point where he can tell us something about what happened. He, after that, he revived, for he hadn't eaten food or drunk water for three days and three nights. That's a long time out in the ground when you're waiting, when you're that hungry and thirsty. Then David said to the Egyptian, who do you belong to? Where are you from? Well, I'm an Egyptian, the slave told an Amalekite on the run. He said, my master abandoned me when I got sick three days ago. I was like, oh, that's a good master. You're sick, he dumps you. Leaves you to die. So then David asked me, said, oh, excuse me, he's, oh, the guy's talking about the Egyptians, said, yeah, we raided that south country of the Cherethites, the territory of Judah. That's where David would be. And the south country of Caleb, and we burned down Ziglag. He tells him, yeah, we, we massacred them all. I mean, we, we didn't massacre them all. We caught them all. And we've got them, and they were going to sell us. And so here's what God's going. So David then asked him, will you lead me to the raiders, the guys that stole all our families? He said, swear to me by God that you won't kill me or turn me over to my master, and I'll lead you right to him. So he led them there, and there were the Amalekites spread out over the entire area, eating, drinking, celebrating because of the great amount of plunder they'd taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. By the way, you can see the Amalekites, they didn't just go with one group. Any place was an opportunity. They didn't care if you're Philistine or Israelite. There was a place to steal it from. They took it. So here's what's going on. It said they had this huge plunder. Life was good. They're celebrating. They've got all this stuff. They've got all these people that they can now sell on the slave trade. And here's, of course, what happened in verse 7. But David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Now, there's an incredible battle. None of them escaped except, well, 400 young men who got on camels and fled. The camel was like having a really nice car. You can go really fast, you know. And so they got off. They got it. But the most of them, he got them. And, of course, now he's got the opportunity to go back to be with their families. Now, notice, if you would, verse 18. It said, David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken. He also rescued his two wives, which I'm sure was a big thing for him. Nothing of theirs was missing from the youngest to the oldest. And they got back all the loot, including the sons of the daughters and all the plunder the Amalekites had taken. David got everything back. He took all the sheep and cattle which were driven ahead of the livestock, and the people shouted, this is David's plunder. You know, we had a big tragedy here. We lost all our families, but we've got them back, and now we've got even more things because all the stuff that they stole, we now have got them. And so things are looking up for him in a, lot, in a lot better way. Now, verse 21. When David came to the 200 men who'd been too exhausted to go with him, 
and had been left at the Wadi Besor, they came out to meet him and to meet the troops. And it was, hey, welcome back, guys. It's the 400 guys coming back. Thank you so much. We're so grateful for what you did. So they came out to meet him and to meet the troops. When David approached the men, now notice what happens. He greeted them. David greeted them. But all the worthless men among those who had gone with David retorted, because they didn't go with us, we're not going to give them any of the plunder. We recovered them except, excuse me, of the plunder we recovered to them, except for each a man's wife and child, they can take them and go. In other words, you didn't fight, you don't get nothing. I mean, you can get your wife and your children back. But you don't get any of the loot. It's only for the 40, 400 of us who fought. We're going to get the stuff. You ain't getting zilch, except for your wife and your children. And David, one of the good things you see about him, even though the men are saying, no, well, you don't get it. You don't deserve it. You were lazy. You didn't fight with us. David said, no, we're not going to do that. Look how he responds. But David said, my brothers, you must not do this. With what the Lord, you must not do this with what the Lord has given us. In other words, do you realize that this massive amount of booty that we have, all the stuff that we've gotten, God is ultimately involved in this. This is what the Lord has given us. He protected us. He handed us over to the raiders who came against us. Can we not agree in a proposal? The share of the one who goes into battle is to be the same as the share of the one who remains in the supplies. They will share equally. In other words, it doesn't matter if you could not fight, but you're still part of the team, you get a share of it. And of course, some of the guys didn't like that because they thought they'd get much more that way if they could do it. But he said, that's not the way it is. There are some who can work in some ways that can't work in others. That's still a thing that we think about today. There are some who have abilities to do this, and there are some who have greater abilities. But the fact is that it's shared equally, because we're all on the same team. We're all working for the same thing. Particularly in this case, it's for David to finally become king and to establish his kingdom. And by the way, it's, it's talking to a guy who's t t big on this, he was saying you know, that idea of the fact that you share equally regardless of how much they fought or what there was, that was carried on for generations of how God used that in people's lives. And so it's been from this day forward. David established this policy as a law and an ordinance for Israel, and it continues to the very day, the time, the time when this person wrote it. We don't know exactly where that was. When David came to Ziklag, he sent some of his plunder to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here's a gift from you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. We're seeing a little different side of David. He's becoming more David the politician. Hi, I just happened to have a nice gift for you. I got this from an ugly Amalekite, and I wanted to give this to you. And he's, he's, he's working the system a little bit. He wants to give presents to everybody, say, hey, did you see what we did? And I'm hoping he's given God the glory for it. But whatever it was, he had lots of booty, and he's giving it out to lots of people. And they're going, hey, that guy David, he's a pretty good guy, isn't he? Hey, look at this. Boy, that Amalekite, I'd love to get that. You know, so things are looking a little better for him in spite of all the troubles. And so here what happens. He sent uh, gifts to those in Bethel. We know where that is further up. Ramoth of the Negev, that's farther in the south. Jatir, don't know where that is. To those in Aror, that's also in the south. Some of these we don't even know. Like Sifmoth, Eshtemoa, and those in Rachel, don't know much about them. In the towns, in the towns of the Jerahites, that's way south. In the towns of the Kenites, all the south, and to those in Korma, in Borshan, and Atach, and those in Hebron. That's at least one we've heard about a lot. Hebron's a city there, where, uh, uh, was a major one for the city in the south. 
to those in all the places where David and his men had roamed. Now, that passage is a fascinating passage because here you're seeing David again in another critical situation. A critical situation where he feels maybe thought he had to do this, take all 600 men, do what he could. Other people have said, you were foolish. You should have left half the group back there to protect us in case there was a raid. Whatever it was, he was in big trouble. What had happened is God was with him. And the fact that the Lord was with him, he was able to come back, rescue them. And not only that, he got more than what he had and what he started with. But when we talk about this passage, what is there in here that we can pick up on? And there's a number of them. I'm just going to focus on one for just a couple minutes. And that is, when you look at this passage, one of the key verses about David, here's a guy who's been a battered leader. I mean, he has been hit from one side, one side to the other. He has so many struggles. He's been hurt so many times. He's been disappointed so many times. He's been told he's going to be king, and yet it hasn't happened, and he is hurting. And what we see in this passage is, it's interesting, it seems like if one thing happens, another thing happens. Everything, if it wasn't for bad news or bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. There's an interesting passage in the book of Amos um, that kind of describes this. This is Amos 5. It's from an interesting passage talking about the day of the Lord. And they're thinking this, the day of the Lord is going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. And there are passages that seem to say that, but this is not. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? And they're thinking, great, it's going to be wonderful. He said, well, it'll be like darkness and not light. It'll be, it'll be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and he rests his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. In other words, you can't get anything right. Everything you do seems to go wrong. And David has had enough of all of this. And this has been so hard for him. You know, here's the guy who killed Goliath. This is the guy that fought the battles, those early battles for, for, for Saul. And here he is like, oh, I can't believe this. Everything I do just seems to go wrong. And yet, I'm still going. But I still don't know how long before I'm going to ever be king. And so this is going on. Interesting. It's interesting. Here's the verse I want to focus on. David was in a difficult position, that's for sure. The troops talked about stoning him, for they were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. That's the difference between him and Saul. Saul goes to a witch to find help. David goes to his Lord. In the midst of the things, he made a lot of things wrong. David did a lot of wrong things. Many people think he was like a butcher when he was out there in the wilderness, killing them all. But the difference was, he was still a man after God's own heart. He's a man who believed that God would give him the strength he needed for whatever the problem was, whatever the issue was. I want us to think about that for a minute, because most of us here who are more than 15 years old, at least, have been through situations, some of us multiple situations, where at times we, our hearts have been broken, times where we just don't understand where God is, times where we've prayed so much for people only to see them die or suffer. And there's a lot of us that go through these situations as we go older and we go through all these struggles and we keep thinking, Lord, where are you? I mean, do you really care for us? Are you aware of our struggles? Do you know of the pain that we're dealing with? 
And I love that verse, but David found strength in the Lord as God. And there's different ways that God uses that to he, for him to be able to help us in our need. One of the most obvious ones is the fact that how God works us through people. Alexander McLaren was 150 years ago, one of the well-known commentators. He's talking about David. He said, you know, after this whole mess happened where they lost all the people and they got him back, he said, David could no longer say, my house. He didn't have his house, okay? He said he couldn't say, my city. His house had just been burned down. He couldn't say, my possessions. Actually, he could say that because at the event there, he did get some stuff. But he said this, but he could say, my God. I like that quote. He could not say, my house, my city, my God, but he could say, my, he could say, my God, I've got you. That's where strengthening must begin. And I think that's a great thing he talked about in the midst of the sorrows, in the midst of the struggles, in the midst of saying, you know what, but I still have the Lord. Or maybe the other way around, the Lord still has me. Probably both true. But the point is the fact that he is a man who recognized the Lord is there. I cannot give up. It's interesting if you look about some of the way how people of God work through people, one of the real things that he works through is the role of others in our lives. Sometimes we forget that. Years ago, I, read a, I wrote, a, uh, wrote a book. I wish I could say I did. I read a book about, and I forget the title, but it was something about the lonely American. And it was talking about all these studies that have found that most American men are lonely. They have kind of like this kind of a thing. It's like the Marlboro Man. I'm a rough and tough guy. I don't need nobody. Remember the, some of the ones that used to have a Christmas tree? Of the guy dragging the Christmas tree to his little hut so he can sit there and smoke Marlboros by himself in Christmas time? You know, it's that idea of I'm the rough and tough guy. I'm the John Wayne kind of guy. The reality of a lot of guys are lonely. It's easier, I think, for women to be able to get together and share. And guys are, yeah, great. Do it. Everything's doing great. Mm -hmm, doing great. Really? then you know, you know, your wife is leaving you and, and the co you know, your company's going down. Oh, everything's fine. We're fine. I, I, don't, I don't need anybody. It's a tragedy. When God gives us people in our lives, that sometimes we don't even want that because we want to be the tough guy. Some of you who've heard this illustration, forgive me, but years ago, not years ago, not a while back, I had a guy in my Friday Bible study who asked, uh, could I meet with you? I said, sure. So we had a cup of coffee, and he told me about the struggles they were having, struggles with their daughter, all kinds of issues, lived in Highland Park, beautiful home, everything was nice. But, but he told me, our life is terrible. I mean, could you help me? So we had coffee. And then a week later, he said, can we go to the country club, and I'll buy you lunch. And we had a wonderful lunch. And so we went through all this and went through it. And so we met another time, and I, I said, you know, I'll call him Bob. It wasn't Bob. I said, Bob, you know, I see you're struggling and stuff, and you told me you've got your buddy, then you play every Thursday at the same country club, the same time, you know. I said, I mean, you've talked to him about this, haven't you? And he said, no. I said, you've been playing golf with the same guy for 25 years, and you've not even told him from the struggles you're going on? No. He said, in our community, you don't tell people that you're struggling. And I thought, that is tragic. That is tragic. When you have people who'd be willing to help you, to stand along with you, to help you and encourage you, they don't want it. And what was very sad, he said to me, I said, well, then tell me, who would you say is your best friend? And he said, well, you, of course. I said, Bob, I hate to tell you this. I'm not your best friend. 
I've had coffee with you and one lunch, and I'm your best friend. I'm willing to help you when I can, but you need to have other guys in your life that are holding you accountable, that are helping you. By the way, Larry Honey is a guy who over years has been doing that. As many of you would know, he has had multiple Bible studies. A lot of these are guys that are struggling, marriage issues, work, and he's continued to work with them for year after year after year. And he's made encouragement to many of these guys along the way. So one of the things that God gives us is other people. You know, and that's one of the things, the gifts that we have in this church, by the way. If you're in a huge mega church, you may know a small group of people there, but you're not going to know most of the people. In a small church, you do have the opportunity to get to know a lot of people really well. Now, I appreciate some of these community tables we do and some of the events that we have. They give us an opportunity. We have the privilege of getting to know people really well. I've been surprised over the years at people I thought, well, I know them. Now I've gotten to know them even more and thought more. And they're like, wow, there is so much there that I didn't even know about that person. That is a privilege that we have as a congregation. There's no excuse for not knowing the name of every person in this room. And it's a privilege to get to know how God is working in them. And God comes back to us to encourage us in the needs that we have and the strength that we need. So part of it, that we, how does God help us in that, is the role of others. The famous one that we all know of, of Proverbs 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother's born for a difficult time. There have been many of us that have really been encouraged by a friend who we talk with in the midst of our struggles. So the use of, I mean, the, the, the roles of others in our lives is big. For example, David was in the wilderness of Ziph and Horash when he saw that Saul had come to take his life. Saul's son Jonathan came to Doris, here's that verse, came to David in Horesh, and he encouraged him in his faith in God. The role of a person saying, I know you're hurting. I know you're struggling. Can I help you? Can I walk this path, difficult path with you? It's a good passage that talks about it. So one thing we talk about, how God uses others in our life. The other is an obvious one. It's the promise of God. The Old, the Old Testament and New Testament is replete with passage after passage of God saying, I am with you. I will take care of you. I will. All these promises. You go up and Google promises of God, you'll spend a long time going through the list. That's the kind of God that we serve. And the fact that we have these promises encourage us in the midst of the struggles and the hurts that we go through. And so, for example, um, I love this one, Elizabeth Elliott. I've used it many times. As Elizabeth Elliott said this, God has never promised to solve our problems. Darn. He's not promised to answer our questions. Mm, wish he did. He has promised to go with us. That is far more important than the fact that he answers all our problems and issues. And the fact that we have a Savior who's with us makes all the difference in the world in the midst of our struggles. The last verses of Matthew chapter 28. And remember, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You're never alone if you're a believer walking with Christ. And so the fact that we have the promises of God, the fact Christ will be with us, encourages us. But there's one more, a third one I want you to be thinking about. The importance of worship there's probably many of us in this room that at times have had to worship with tears in our eyes. There's probably many times we've had to worship, whether it's in singing or hearing the word of the gospel. 
but with us like, Lord, I don't know where you're at, and I feel so desperate, but would you strengthen me with the grace that you can give? What a gift that is to know that even in the midst of our sorrow, we can say, Lord, I don't know what's going on, but I know you're God and you are good, and I can entrust myself fully to you. That's a gift for us. It's something that the Lord has given us. This is an old one. It's anonymous. No one knows who wrote it. Some people think it sounds a little too squirrely, but it's an interesting one. God did promise days without pain, laughter without sorrow, or sun without rain, but he did promise strength for the day, comfort for the tears, and light for the way. If God brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that David was a man in the midst of all the suffering that he was going through, that he was willing to turn to you, that he knew that his source was not going to the witch of Endor, but it was going to the Lord his God. We thank you for David. We realize he's a mixed person himself. But Father, at the end of the time, he was a man who loved you, whose heart was to you. We pray that you be worshipped without helping us as we continue in our worship. We ask this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.